0: We're on Patreon! Check out our options for video episodes, bonus content, live chats, and episode topic selections and polls. Find us on patreon.com forward slash Switchblade Sisters Social Club.
1: Help us keep this shit show on the road. Welcome to the Switchblade Sisters Social Club, a true crime podcast where two sisters exploit their worst fears for your entertainment. You're welcome.
0: I'm Dee. And I'm Rhonda. And together we are the Sake Sisters. For more information, check out our website at www.switchbladesistersocialclub.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Switchblade Sisters Social Club. Thanks for listening.
1: This is Sister Social Club. I'm Dee. And this is Rhonda, my sister. Hi! So this is a true crime podcast where two sisters exploit their worst fears for your entertainment. You're welcome! We're super excited because we're going to something soon. First of all, I'm really excited because I love our little outings. And obviously, you are a mother of six-year-old twins. So we don't get to go out that much, you and me. So that in itself, super exciting. But doubly exciting is where we're going, and that is a crime con
0: I've never been. Me neither. No, but if anyone is going, then hit us up, DM us, and let us know if you're going, too. Yeah, because we
1: will be so excited there. We would love to talk to other people who make true crime podcasts or any podcasts or anyone. If you've listened to us, then, oh, my God, you will make our day if you come. You know when you're like... Oh, should I go up to them and tell them I love their work? And you're like, oh, I (laughs) don't want to be Yeah, fucking do it. We love an ego boost. And it would just be really nice. It'd be really nice to meet people that listen to it. It You know, like when you're podcasting, you're kind of just sitting on your own. I mean, we're not even in the same room together, just talking to the air sometimes. And so it's really nice when we get any engagement, to be honest, on socials. We love it. We love it. So do come say hi. We're not scary in person or in any capacity, I don't think. (laughs) So yeah, that's in June, and we're so excited. Do hit us up. If you're going, then please let us know. Uh, We would love to see you, but I'm so excited because there's going to be talking people talking about cold cases. We'll definitely report back to you guys what we learn, what we find out.
0: It's going to be a day of content collection and creation.
1: Oh, and I'm so excited about learning how we can make this podcast better
0: for our professional
1: development.
0: Yes, so we're trying to be the best we can be for you.
1: Exactly. So yeah, really excited. Can't wait. I'm just really excited because it's going to be super fun. I'm just looking at the website. An ultimate true crime weekend with over 50 hours of true crime content, cold cases, immersive experiences, deep dive into case history, learn from experts, discover unheard cases. So oh, I can't
0: wait. This is like our version of like a spa weekend a retreat.
1: You know what it's like when you're into kind of, when you have any kind of weird hobby or you're into anything and people are like, oh, what do you do in your spare time? And you're like, I like to read about murder. And unless that person has the (laughs) same interest, they look terrified.
0: Oh, do you know what? Spare time is not a thing, though, that we have. We literally book our Fridays off our normal work to do this, to bring you guys the best that we can.
1: Yeah. And we love Fridays, don't we? We We always talk about how it feels like a little bit of a holiday.
0: Oh, I, I love it.
1: It's going to be nice to be with other people where we can talk about weird developments and DNA profiling and all mm. kinds of stuff and not have people look at us like we're absolutely oh my God. Yeah. bonkers. Yeah. I was having a conversation with a friend recently and she kept on referring to my murder podcast. And I was like, oh, don't call it that. It makes it me sound even weirder. It's a true crime podcast. And we... We talk about a lot of things, like it's a lot about safety, especially for
0: women. A lot Well, that's of, our motivation. That's what piques our interest in all this is women trying to be safe and stay alive, you know?
1: And not just women, obviously, but just, you know, red flags to watch out for and mm. all kinds of stuff. And it's for sure just something that we've always been interested in since kids, because we talked about it before. Like our mom, is; um, she always loved like Agatha Christie and watching Poirot at Christmas and our dad's Palestinian, so we were raised hearing some pretty gruesome things about that area. And and it's just developed in us, in addition to our sort of love of education and reading and researching and all this, which we totally admit we nerd out on. But we just want to know, and we're fascinated by human behavior, especially when it's so different to ours Yeah, and the way
0: we think. Completely, completely. And you know what? I do love our Fridays, because... Oh, it is like a it is like a break doing our podcast Fridays because I I do Monday, I work Monday to Saturday. And I do that because I only I can only work during school hours. So I need to spread my working week across Monday to Saturdays. And on Saturdays, I work for the news website as a copy editor during the week. I, you know, do social media management. And it is so nice to just have a Friday where, especially when you're presenting, where I can just kick back, listen to a story.
1: Yeah. If you're ever wondering what we're doing on a Friday. This it's is what we're doing. Working on stuff for you. And you know what? I love researching the episodes because yeah. I I make it a, a self-care event. So I make sure I'm in my comfiest PJs. I make sure I have my blanket. I make sure I have lots of drinks and snacks. And I sit there with a book, or if I'm watching, if I'm researching, watching documentaries, and I have my little notebook, which here, which i stuck a sticker on here, switchblade sister social club, because I have a lot of fucking notebooks. Mm. So this is my one <laughs> dedicated specifically and I just get cozy and I just have a bit of me time reading about some cold case or some, yeah,
0: I love it. And it's, it's my favorite social media account to manage is ours. Oh,
1: and you do so well. I have a confession to make, right? Oh. This is going to throw the timing out completely, but um, maybe people don't know when your birthday is. Anyways, yesterday, the reason why I came around and had the chewing gum incident, as mentioned in the previous episode, was because it was your birthday and we were having nice takeaway together. But I saw Michelle Dashwood, you know. Oh Dashers, yeah, Michelle Dashwood, who is amazing. She is a Michelle tower Dashwood reader. is one
0: of those people you can't ever just call her Michelle. It's Michelle Dashwood.
1: Yeah, because Dashwood's an awesome name. She's related oh. to um, Sir Dashwood, which might come up as a future episode. He was the one that made the Hellfire Club. He had this amazing mansion above some caves, and they had all these debauchery parties. On- oh yeah, and not surprising, that's one of her relatives. Okay, so what's the confession? I'm getting scared. <laughs> oh no, it's a good confession. Oh, good, she okay. she gave me a birthday present to pass on to you and I forgot oh, to give it to you. I even brought it to your house. It was in oh, my handbag. But I want to show it to you now. And I helped her pick it um because so cute. I know, but I told her like, look, it's got to be something useful because she won't oh. want anything just, you know, cuz you like to keep things to the minimum, right? So yeah. she's <laughs> given you this notebook oh, that she's gosh. made herself. It's got the phases oh, of the moon, it's a Silmo oh tippy, God. little berry and some leaves. And I thought she'll love that for taking notes on the podcast oh my God. or whatever.
0: Michelle, Michelle, that is the cutest thing. I'm literally going to voice note her as soon as we get off. Yeah,
1: I, I told her, I just sent her a voice note myself, that I have forgotten to give you the present, but I'm going to tell you about it right now.
0: Oh, oh, that is so, a cutest gift. That is the cutest gift. And her notebooks are amazing. Like, they are literally gorgeous. like a work of art. They're, they are. They're she like hand makes made, them. They? Yeah.
1: They're just absolutely beautiful. I have quite a few, and they just feel special. They're for your special
0: notes, you know? Oh, that is the cutest thing. That is the cutest, cutest ever. Like, honestly, that's the, uh, so nice. Do you know what else is interesting? Literally, as we started recording, I've had two recommendations from friends about future podcast episodes. Hello, Jamie and Claire, Blake Moore. <laughs> oh, I love them, Jamie and Claire Blake. We do love them. We do love them. See, we've
1: got at least five listeners. <sighs>
0: do you know what? We've got a good support network of great friends and nice people. Yeah, we really do.
1: So yeah, I just wanted to show you that. I'll post a link to Michelle's page, like I said, because she makes a bunch of things that are absolutely fucking gorgeous.
0: Yeah, and I'm so interested in the fact that she's like I know she does tarot readings, but that she's does psychic readings too, huh? Oh, do you know what? Her readings are spooky, spooky accurate. Mm. So yeah, I'll put her details.
1: Okay. Well, I'm really keen to get started on. Uh, Tell me, tell
0: me the fucking story. I'm comfy. Come on. Let's go. Oh, because
1: it is like just hold on to your seats because this one is Uh. fucking (laughs) It's so dark. We're gonna get so dark today, okay? I'm really sorry. Sit back, relax, and get ready. A lot of my research comes from a fantastic book called When a Killer Calls by John Douglas and Mark Alshaker. I'm really sorry. I'm probably saying that wrong. Sorry, Mark. John Douglas is a former FBI agent who worked on criminal profiling, and he is the guy that Mindhunter was based on, you know, that season, that series. Yeah. Wait, what's
0: his name?
1: John Douglas. Hmm. It's just fascinating. These criminal profilers, how much they get right. Like, obviously, mm. they're researching, researching, researching past cases and all sorts and building up an idea of like, you know, someone that commits this cr- kind of crime is most likely like this and blah, blah, blah. We had it a bit in the bodies in a suitcase episode where those are most likely committed in the home of the victim and the perpetrator. And-, and
0: also, that was a crime committed by a woman, the the body in the suitcase yeah. episode
1: and it's almost always when it's a dismemberment someone that they um that is known to the victim so all that kind of stuff it comes from a lot of research of past cases and this is another one of those cases where the criminal profilers come in and they are just amazingly accurate and that must be so useful in guiding the investigation mm.
0: right
1: to have a better idea of what you're probably looking for Mark, the other guy, old shocker, whose name I can't pronounce, is an Emmy Award winning filmmaker, journalist, and author of fiction and nonfiction. And I'm going to buy all of his books now because this one was so good. I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. So I picked this case because I listened to a podcast on it. And have you ever had this where you're listening to a podcast or you're watching a TV show, but you're only half paying attention, but you're paying attention enough that re-watching it will be kind of annoying because you've seen enough of it. Mm-hmm. To make it yeah. yeah. So it was like that. It had already gripped me. So I was like, I'm just going to fucking cover this case for our podcast. So I found this book and away I went. So let me take you back to the year of our Rhonda, i.e. the year you were born, 1985, Lexington, South Carolina. Shari Smith is a 17-year-old girl, young adult, who was due to sing the Star Spangled Banner at her class graduation in two days and the following week she was due to go on her senior class trip to the Bahamas. So can you imagine do you remember when you were about to graduate you felt like on top of the motherfucking world yeah didn't you?
0: I have a feeling that it's not gonna end well for her. No it doesn't
1: but can you imagine if you had that feeling on top of that you were also going to the Bahamas in a week I mean she must have just been high on life right. She was musical she sang and danced in loads of her school choirs and performances and she was on student council she had a sister who was a couple of years older than her called Dawn, who's already away at university. And they looked a lot alike. Let me just bring up pictures. So this is the Smith family. So you can see Shari in the bottom. Uh, to be honest, I don't even know which one's Shari and which one's Dawn. They look so much alike, but you can see, right? Yes. Nice, wholesome American family there. Yeah. So Shari and Dawn looked a lot alike. Shari planned to go to Columbia College in South Carolina to major in voice and piano. Both sisters were blonde, gorgeous, talented. Shari had even been voted most talented and wittiest in her yearbook. Dawn and Shari often performed together, for example, at their church, and people refer to them as the Smith sisters. On the 31st of May, this is two days before her graduation, she goes to school for a graduation rehearsal, because remember she's singing Star Star Spangled Banner. She was meant to call her mom when she was leaving so they could go to the bank together and get traveler's checks, which was a thing that people used to use in the 80s for her trip to the Bahamas. At 11.30 a.m., she called her mom and told her to meet at the bank in half an hour. She asked her mom to bring a swimsuit because she was going to a pool party after the bank because you can imagine that time. I imagine all her exams are finished and it's basically just graduation and then off you go. At the bank, she got the traveler's checks with her mom. And met with her boyfriend, Richard Lawson, and her friend, who's got one of the most amazing names I've ever heard, Brenda Boozer. (laughs) Love it. Great name. Great (laughs) name, Brenda Boozer. They went in Richard's car to the party. So they left Brenda's and Shari's Shari's car in the shopping center car park. At 2.30 p.m., Shari called home to say that she was about to leave the party. So you can see she's in regular contact with her parents even though this is a pre-mobile phone time. So this girl is going to pay phones or using house phones to call her parents, you know? Richard drove her and Brenda Boozer back to their cars at the shopping center. And then Shari drove home, which was about 10 miles out of Lexington. So their house was pretty rural. I have a photo as well of their house and their driveway. Can you see? Oh God, wow, that's a long driveway. That's their driveway, exactly. So that's important to remember.
0: God, there's something about that picture and that car. The house and the car, got bad news written all over it. Oh, God, yep. okay. Oh, God. So the, the driveway was 750
1: feet long, which is around 228 meters. So you saw it was a bit of a way, right? At around 3.25 p.m., Shari pulled into the entrance of the driveway and she stopped her car at the mailbox to check the mail, which was her habit. She would just pull up and check the mail and then carry on driving to the main house. She left the engine running on her car and didn't even bother slipping her jelly shoes back on, which was just adorable. The thought of her driving mm. barefoot just feels really wholesome and adorable. And yeah. Shari's parents, Bob and Hilda, were home and they noticed her car pull up. Bob was an engineer who often worked from home and he was a volunteer minister in prisons. Hilda was a substitute teacher. And as I mentioned, they were church going folk. Hilda looked out the window and saw Sherry's Sherry's car at the bottom of the drive by the mailbox. But when the car didn't move for a while, Hilda assumed that Shari got a letter, maybe from her sister Dawn, who was already at uni and they were writing to each other regularly, and opened it to read in the car. But then five minutes passed, ten minutes passed, Hilda and Bob kept looking out the window at the car and wondering what was keeping her. And eventually Bob was getting so worried because Shari had a condition called diabetes insipidus, which I'd never heard of. And we have diabetes in the family. It's also known as water diabetes. And it means that Shari is constantly thirsty and needing to urinate. And it means that she's in constant danger of dehydrating. So she has to take her medicine regularly on time, and she needs to make sure she's constantly drinking a lot of water. So Bob was worried that maybe she like passed out or something, you know, she's been at the pool party and the heat, et cetera, et cetera. So he gets in the car and drives down to the end of the driveway. And that photo I showed you, that car that freaked you out, that was Shari's car at the end of the driveway. Mm -hmm. When he got to her car, he finds her motor still running. Her driver's door is open and there's no sign of her. There were letters on the ground near the mailbox and her handbag and shoes were still in the car. Her medicine and her wallet were still in our handbag in the car. Bob could see barefoot prints leading from the car to the mailbox, but none going back, which ugh, just would have been just creepy and scary and terrifying. He must have instantly known something was wrong, right? Because where the fuck would she be? Very early on, the Columbia, South Carolina police called the behavioral science unit at the FBI because it was really clear very early on that she wasn't a runaway. It wasn't, she wasn't the type in quotation marks. She would have taken her medicine and her wallet at the very least.
0: And not left the engine running.
1: Shoes. I mean, she would have taken her car, right? Like why would you drive out to the middle of nowhere after being in town to run away from there without your car and your shoes? It was just very clearly not a runaway. And therefore it probably was foul play. And that she was intercepted doing what she's yeah. doing. Yeah, And also she had so much to look forward to. You know, she had her graduation. She's just gone to rehearsal for it. She's going to the Bahamas. It just didn't seem like a time that she was. So consider- who the fuck did it? Do we know? Okay, we do know. So there is a conclusion. This is a solved case, but it gets a whole lot worse. Oh, God. So yeah, it just didn't seem like a suicide. It didn't seem like a runaway. So very early on, they call in extra help, which is, you know, not always the case.
0: They have to wait 24 hours, don't they?
1: Yeah, but I guess because they suspected foul play early on, luckily they got on it right away. And that is largely due to Sheriff James Metz, who very early on involved the FBI, involved the press, and so forth. So normally we hear about local police being reluctant to involve outside help, even if they have little experience in the specific kind of crime. James Metz sounds kind of amazing. He was 37 and had already been sheriff for 12 years. He'd done an eleven-week training course called the FBI National Academy for Senior Police, so he was aware about the, of the profiling program at the FBI, and he was really keen to involve them. Surprise, surprise! A senior police officer with no ego. So John Douglas, the profiler, gets involved. This is the guy that has co-written this book. Immediately, the FBI agree it was a kidnapping, and they put wiretaps on the phone at the house because they expect or they hope for some kind of contact from the kidnapper for ransom. At this point, I just want to say, when I got to this point in the book, I stumbled across an FBI file season two episode called Cat and Mouse on Amazon Prime. It was amazing. It's on this case. It's got interviews with the family like Dawn, the sister, and also John Douglas. So if you're interested in this case, do check that out. Basically, there's two different kinds of abductions, or two that they were thinking of this could be. One of them is an abduction for ransom. And they were hoping it's this, because obviously there's a much higher chance that they will see their daughter again. But the problem is that the family were not particularly rich, so it's not an obvious choice for a kidnapping for money. So the other kind of abduction is obviously much less likely for a good outcome, and that is usually leading to a homicide. The profiling team were convinced this wasn't an ad hoc kidnapping. They were convinced that he had followed her home, perhaps following her for a little while.
0: Did they think it was somebody that knew her? We'll get to that. Oh, okay.
1: Because the perpetrator's footprints prints were not also found on the scene, they think he might have used a gun or a knife to threaten Shari into his vehicle. John Douglas estimated the following. This is the creepy thing, right? These are what he suspects the perpetrator possesses as characteristics. No more than a high school education, white male, average IQ, Dishonorable or medical discharge from the military. Married with issues or divorced. Blue collar. Past criminal record for arson or sexual assault. Drives a dark vehicle because that's what's favored for orderly and organized people. Local and feels unattractive. Obviously very difficult to put that out and be like, we're looking for this man. But definitely in terms of narrowing down suspects. It's a specific profile. Yeah, it's very, very useful. So they start looking at people, for example, the family, they eliminate the family as, you know, there was a younger brother and uh, the father, they eliminate them right away. They started looking at people that Bob Smith, the father, may have encountered as a volunteer minister in the prisons, especially because sometimes Bob would bring Shari and Dawn in the prison to sing. And I mean, would you ever, with your young daughters, bring them into a prison? I'm a protective parent. (laughs) I love the idea of rehabilitation through music. I do
0: too. I do too.
1: And it's, it's obviously him trying to be very nice and it's so big of them. I think they're much bigger people than I ever could be. But for me to bring like your underage kids into a prison environment. Girls
0: as well. Yeah. Yeah. Around men who haven't been around women for a while. It, It makes me super uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm all for rehabilitation too. I really am over punishment, but you know, what you expose your kids to is, is, uh, you know, a different, there's a different parameter. for makes me so
1: uncomfortable and I couldn't do it. You know, I just couldn't. So, but yeah, I, I presume he made sure that that was in the safest capacity he possibly could. And maybe I don't know what prisons he was in. Maybe it was like white collar crimes in quotation marks, rather than like sexual offenders or something. I
0: wouldn't want to tempt fate.
1: It made me feel really uncomfortable because they're underage in particular. The thought was that maybe one of the prisoners saw Shari and developed an obsession, but they soon ruled out anyone that they came across in that capacity. Then that Sunday, like two, three days after she went missing, her graduation went ahead without her. People prayed and wept during the ceremony. Obviously a huge part of it was dedicated to her and her chair remained empty. Then at 2.20 a.m. on the Monday morning... The phone at the Smith household rings. Bob answers, but the caller asked to speak to Mrs. Smith. So Hilda takes the phone. The mail caller says he has some information on Shari. He said he wanted to prove to Mrs. Smith that he wasn't a hoax caller, because that's obviously a huge problem when things like this happen. He told her that she would get a, sh- a letter from Shari in the post that day, or possibly the next. And then he hung up. The call was traced to a phone booth five miles outside of Lexington, but there was no fingerprints or any other evidence left at the booth. So he was indeed organized and careful, as Mm -hmm. John Douglas, the profiler, predicted. Then the police, bless them, rare I will say that, but rather than waiting for the post, the police got the postmaster to open up the post office and they searched for the letter. And they found this letter addressed to the Smith family. This letter was headlined, Last Will and Testament. Oh fuck! And it was in Shari's handwriting, and I've got a picture.
0: Oh god! Oh god! I know it's gonna haunt me. Okay, show me real quick. You want to see it? I don't have to show it to you. Show me real quick.
1: I mean, I won't read from it because it's just—it's so heartbreaking. But um, here it is. But I'm raising it because it's super important. So you can see, she's God is love. Mm
0: -hmm. I love
1: you. I love y'all. But it's written here: last will and testament. So oh that's a lot isn't it it's heartbreaking in that it's sweet and caring and funny it's so shari but then it's interspersed with requests for a closed casket like can you imagine reading that can you oh, imagine hell. how did they
0: even how did she even manage to write it
1: i know can you imagine being abducted and being forced to write something like that you know you're gonna die at that point there's no way you're forced to write your last like will she and probably
0: testament. put her all her effort into writing it for her parents sake
1: and exactly, trying to put in their comforting words. Mm. And this girl is 17 as well. Oh, it's just, it, it's, I told you, this one is fucking dark. She knew while she was writing this that she was going to die at age 17. I don't know how she could possibly think while writing this anything else. Mm. So then at 3.08 p.m. on that same Monday, so this is the same day that they got that 2.20 a.m. phone call alerting them of the, the letter, 13 hours later, they get another call. Dawn, the older sister answers, but yet again, the caller asks for Mrs. Smith. He asks Hilda if she believes that he has Shari now, and Hilda says, not until I hear her voice. So she's clearly desperate for a sign that her daughter is still alive and safe, as safe as she can be in this, you know, in this situation. He says she will know in two or three days, and she should call off the search, and then he hangs up. The call is traced to the shopping mall, where Shari and Brenda, Brenda Bruiser had left their cars that day when Richard, the boyfriend, drove them to the pool party. So I wasn't clear whether this was a coincidence, whether this was where he first saw her, because she was there twice on two separate occasions during that day to go to get the travelers' checks and then to come back to pick up her car after the pool party. And then at 8.07pm 8, on that same Monday, he calls again. I want to say at this point that you can actually find the audio online of a lot of these phone calls and I have chosen not to play them, but you can, I debated it. You can Google it. You can find it yourself. But to be honest, they just creep me the fuck out so much that I just, I couldn't listen to them again. They're traumatizing. Hilda asks at this point, the caller Uh, This is, again, the third call on this Monday at 8.07 p.m. She asked the caller about Shari's diabetes and the caller says she's drinking two gallons of water a day and peeing regularly. He recommended the Smith family have an ambulance ready at their house. And I just can't imagine being told those words. He then referred to his first phone call, which had actually not been recorded. So they had wiretaps, but they weren't at this point recording the calls. I, I don't know why. Where he said the police were looking in the wrong place. But this time he gave more specifics. He said they should look in Saluda County, which is not in Lexington County where they were. And during this call, the call keeps repeating that
0: Shari is a part of him now. Oh, what the fuck does that mean?
1: I think you know what it means. The profiler had a lot to work with now from these calls, which I guess is the one saving grace from the family being put through this extra trauma is that actually they're getting more and more clues every time he calls. They could tell he was watching the media coverage. So they're constantly thinking how they could leverage the media to elicit desired behaviors from him. But I can't imagine the pressure of this because imagine you try to manipulate it in some way to get the abductor to respond in a specific way and it backfires. Mm. This is why I'm not an FBI profiler.
0: I'm so creeped out by this. It's so creeped out by the twistedness of this because it's not just a, an abduction and a murder it's like psychological torment for the family
1: the whole family exactly which obviously an abduction on its own would have been enough but the fact that they're having to speak to this guy mm. and by the way they're also dealing with hoax calls in the middle of all this so extra who the fuck does to- that I know they are just asking.
0: Keep, keep telling me.
1: Yeah. The next day, which I think at this point, yeah, we're on Tuesday. And remember, she disappeared on the Friday. The phone rang again at 9.45 p.m. And it's our guy again. He stated something would happen tomorrow, i.e. Wednesday, between four in the afternoon and seven in the evening. Police suspected that this wasn't the abductor's first crime. And as we said, the profilers suspect that he has past convictions for assault or arson. He wasn't a genius, but he was criminally smart. They predicted he has a large porn collection, which narrows it down to approximately every single male in the 80s. They suspect he has a preference for sadomasochism, that he fantasizes about power over women, about overpowering women, and that he's likely been thinking about this abduction for a while. They believe that this guy is white, as was predicted already, because these types of per- predator crimes are not often interracial, and Shari was white. So the chance is that she was abducted by someone of the same race as her. And also, Black and Hispanic men are less likely to commit this kind of predator crime. Even though the voice was disguised, they could tell from his accent that he was local. So police had what I think was an ingenious idea. They had the idea to switch off most of the pay phones in the area so that they could watch only the ones that were left working. Because obviously they know he's making calls from payphones. but I don't know how many there were in the area. But to it would have been physically impossible to watch all of them. But if they switch off a whole bunch, then they can watch just the ones that are active. And if he does go to one that's not working, he will be forced to go and find a payphone that does work. Again, I'd be so nervous about doing that. What if it backfires mm. and it makes him angry or he suspects what they're doing? So I don't know, but they obviously know what they're doing at eleven fifty four AM on the Wednesday, the caller calls again, but unfortunately he's make making this call 15 minutes before a whole bunch of the pay phones were switched off. Ugh. I didn't find out whether this would have made a difference. Like if he was calling from one that would have been surveyed mm-hmm. or whether he was calling from one that would have been switched off, but it's just like, ah, oh, fuck. Right. He makes a phone call. And he starts giving directions to the backyard of a Masonic lodge in Saluda County, where he had said that they need to be looking. And unfortunately, at 1235 p.m. on that Wednesday, they find a body there. This lodge was 18 miles from Shari's home. And even though Shari's parents knew that the police had found a body, they obviously still were holding out hope that it wasn't Shari, as you would, right? Right. They waited at home for confirmation, but obviously it was her body and it was so badly decomposed at this point because of the summer heat. How long had it been? Well, if they found the body on Wednesday and she was abducted on the Friday. Wow. You know, it's maybe the moisture, the humidity, the temperature, the how exposed the body was. The police said they didn't need a family member to identify her because they didn't want her to be seen like that. It was thought as well that the killer revisited her corpse several times until it was decomposed so much that he no longer viewed it as human in his eyes. It was determined that she was killed on the Saturday morning, so the morning after she was abducted, after writing her last will and testament. That was the letter that was sent to her parents. And did they know how she was killed? So, during Shari's autopsy... Uh, She was formally identified using dental records, so they didn't need anyone to identify her. They could tell she had been bound, but because of the decomposition, they couldn't determine the exact cause of death, but they suspected strangulation or smothering. The manner of death, though, was listed as homicide because however she died, it was as a direct result of her abduction. And as we learned in the Natalie Wood case, it's super important to get a case marked as homicide because it is so important with regards to how the evidence is treated thereafter, you know, how long they keep all the different bits of forensic evidence, how the investigation is proceeded, who's allocated to the case, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really, really fortunate that they had someone who missed it, who listed it as a homicide rather than undetermined or anything else. Then the killer calls the house again. And this time, it gets worse, he asked to speak to Don. I mean, the mom and dad, they've just lost their daughter, and now the killer is targeting their other daughter. He told her he had already sent a letter to her detailing what happened between picking up Shari and telling the family where the body was. He said that there would be pictures included, which is obviously just fucking awful, but pictures could be a real big clue. You know, oh. they could offer very good insight into... Not only what happened to her, but
0: where she was and who is this guy. This makes me feel even worse than the Levi Belfield episode because this guy, it's the enjoyment that this guy is having with the families, you know, torturing the family. That prediction that he likes to overpower
1: women not only extended to Shari, who he clearly overpowered and murdered, but he's playing these power games with the females in her family as well the mother and the i mean he wasn't never interested in speaking to the dad the dad was the one that picked up the phone call first and immediately asked to speak to the women he feels like he can fuck them around even more so it's it's fucking twisted it's next level fucked Mm -hmm. up isn't it so he promises another letter and pictures he claims he will turn himself in because he promised shari and then he slips up and says, all he wanted to do was make love to Dawn." Dawn says, to who? And the caller says, I'm sorry, to Shari. He then proceeded to tell Dawn how he killed Shari. He says that he duct taped her head so she couldn't breathe, which was in line with what the autopsy mm. predicted. And this breaks my heart because obviously having a sister, you, who I care about deeply, I can't imagine you being murdered. I can't imagine having to speak to the person, see the person. I can't imagine having to speak to them in this kind of context. I mean, we are for sure, we are exploiting our worst fears here for sure. Okay, so on the day of her funeral, over a thousand people filled the Lexington First Baptist Church to honor Shari. When the parents arrived home from the funeral, guess what? Another fucking phone call. He claimed to have been at the funeral, And he reiterated that Don would get a letter with pictures and that he would call the following Saturday at 4.58 a.m., which is what he called Shari's anniversary.
0: Oh, fuck.
1: So we know now that's probably the date she died and possibly the time she died, if he's calling it her anniversary. He left no evidence at the phone box again. So the police interviewed funeral attendees and watched videos of the funeral with the family to try to identify if there's anyone suspicious, anyone they didn't recognize, anyone they did recognize that they thought was odd, et cetera, et cetera. They came to the conclusion that the killer didn't know Shari previously, but he might've been watching her, but maybe just on that one day. Sheriff Metz was convinced that this guy would kill again. So the reward was up to $30,000 and a re- reenactment was filmed for the local Crime Stoppers show. So they're going all out. I mean, this is like fairly small community. This would have been very unsettling and terrifying for everyone that lives there, right? So I wish I could tell you at this point that they caught the guy, the end. But get ready for this. Trigger warning. Well, we should have started with it. I mean, our whole podcast is a trigger warning, we say this. But two weeks after Shari was kidnapped, the day they were recording this reenactment, Nine-year-old Deborah May Helmick was playing with her three-year-old brother in the garden in front of their trailer at Shiloh Mobile Home Park, five miles from Columbia. They'd only lived there for about two months. A silvery-gray car drove into the park, pulled up next to Deborah May. A guy got out and grabbed her and pulled her into the car and drove off. A neighbor in his kitchen, Ricky Morgan, witnessed this. He must have been looking out the window at the time. Ricky ran to the home of the parents, Sherwood and Deborah Louise, to tell them that they just saw his their the daughter being snatched. Only the dad was home at the time. Ricky described the guy to the police as white, about five foot nine, 200 pounds. So basically quite large, male, and hairy, like shaggy. The police instantly think that this could be related to Shari, the Shari case, which is super significant because although it's mainly because of the location, right? That these two things happened so close in time and so close in location because there's a huge age difference. It's not super common for someone to target such young children and then someone who's a young adult like 17. But because of the time frame, because of the fact that it was super close to where Shari had disappeared from, they do start linking the case. This was Friday, the 14th of June, 1985. The press are also starting to link the case even though the girls that were snatched were so different. But I have to show you, even though they're different ages, let me show you how similar they look. I mean, they could be sisters, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. Some fabulous 80s hair going on, but they definitely have similarities.
0: Like Levi Belfield, wasn't it? Blondes?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Profilers at this point
1: ask people to keep an eye out for anyone who changes their appearance drastically because they're putting out e-fits, you know, like drawings of what they suspect this perpetrator looks like and also anyone that talks obsessive- obsessively about the case and this is where i would get in trouble because when we have an ongoing case in the news i am fucking googling the fuck out of it i'm talking to all my true crime friends but this is obviously different so there's a problem instantly in that deborah may's family do not have a phone in their trailer and we know that the perpetrator likes to make his phone calls right at this point the profiler John Douglas the author of the book co-author heads down from Quantico Virginia FBI headquarters to Columbia. He's determined to get the caller to come out of hi- hiding and maybe get him to call the Smiths again because they are in need of more clues. And as traumatizing as it is for the family they just need to get closer to finding out who this guy is and obviously the family are super on board with finding out who did this to their loved one. So they decide to use Dawn as bait <laughs> and Again, I know they're on board with it, but I still think how fucking brave you are. And that still must have been such a dilemma for the parents, you know, putting their daughter in in the line of this mm. killer. They know that the killer has got an obsession with Dawn as well. And she looks so much like Shari. They know now that that's his type because of how much Deborah May looks like that.
0: They must have been so worried every time
1: Dawn left the house. Right, I can't imagine she left the house on her own during this time, right? The idea was to have a high profile memorial for Shari. With Dawn at the center of it, Dawn is is in on it immediately. She's all for it. Um, she will do anything to catch her sister's killer. The idea was that Dawn would place a koala bear belonging to Shari on her grave. And the idea that this, was, this might draw the killer out. The profiler thought that the killer might want this intimate souvenir for himself, or it might make him start calling the, the Smith household again. They decided to do this on Tuesday, the 25th of June. Remember, she only disappeared on the 31st of May, so this is less than a month of time. The 25th of June would have been Shari's 18th birthday. The Saturday morning before the memorial, the phone rang and Don answered it. it, and it was him. He told her, God wants you to join Shari. He then asks if Don has heard about Deborah May and gave directions to where Deborah would be, be, would be waiting in quotation marks. It was thought that the caller was calling the Smith household again because the helmix themselves didn't have a phone. In a bid to keep the per- the killer on the phone, she asked him about the pictures and the letter that he promised her, remember? Mm-hmm. Because she never received them. He told her that he would get them to her as soon as possible. And Don remembered thinking at this point, and this is a quote from the book, What are these people going to do to protect me for the rest of my life if this man is never caught? Oh, my God. And and at this point, she's like 19 herself, Mm -hmm. you know? She's at uni. It's meant to be like such an exciting time of her life. And instead, she's dealing with the murder of her young sister and the, the murderer being obsessed with her as well. Police rush to follow the directions that he gave, hoping that it would lead to a little girl still alive. They went to Gilbert City Limits, which was an area 75 yards off of Main Street, where they found a female child body.
0: Oh, do you know what? I fucking hate this story so bad. Oh, Sorry, okay, I told keep, you. Keep it moving. Is this the darkest one we've done this so far? This is the far? worst, yeah. This, it really I, is. I think so, yeah.
1: So they found it 10 miles from where Shari's body was found. The parents positively identified the clothing that this little girl was wearing and the pink barrette, which broke my heart. Suffocation was listed as the most likely cause of death, and fingerprints identified the body as poor little Deborah May. It is now believed by the profiler, by John Douglas, that they were dealing with a repeat killer who would not stop until he was caught. And clearly there was an urgency around it, because he kidnapped Deborah May only two weeks after he kidnapped Shari. That is... You know, quite commonly we find that somewhat, that the, the timings between the crimes start speeding up, but this guy has already started at a really high rate. Although he had a type, for example, Don and Shari Smith, he was essentially an opportunist. So he would attack any vulnerable female that he could overpower. So it's thought that he just saw Deborah May, saw that she was a vulnerable female on her, well, she was with her three-year-old, so basically on her own. And he took that opportunity to snatch her. The police are now obviously getting loads of leads. Most of them are not very helpful. And four people have been arrested for trying to extort a ransom from the Smith um, oh. the Smith family or making false reports. So to these people, I say you're fucking assholes because the amount of trauma, extra trauma it causes, and also the amount of police resources it wastes when they could be focusing on actually finding the killer. You are shit. You are just mm. the lowest of the low. So on Tuesday, they held this memorial, the 25th of uh, June. The family placed the koala on the grave. Attendees were scanned in case the murderer was in attendance. Police took down all the license plate numbers. And Deborah May's funeral was held the next day. Again, the attendees were surveyed. Back at the lab, there was a breakthrough with Shari's last will and testament, which is why I wanted to show you, because it was a key, key factor in this case. They used some kind of technology to see if there were any imprints on the notepaper used from previous writings on that Mm. notepad. Mm -hmm. And they found what they thought was a phone number, 10 numbers long, and they managed to identify nine out of those 10 numbers. So they assume it's a phone number, and they obviously managed to narrow it down to 10 different phone numbers because there's only one number in that series that they couldn't identify One of them got several calls from a residence about 50 miles from Shari's home. So they call the number and ask if he knew anyone in the state. And he said his parents, Ellis and Sharon Shepard, lived nearby in this area where all of these abductions are happening. They determined that this guy, Joey, was not a suspect. He had an alibi. He didn't fit the profile. He wasn't in the area. So they go and visit his parents, Ellis and Sharon Shepard. As soon as the Shepherds answer the door, they also make the assumption that they are not involved. They were in their 50s. They didn't meet the profile. They weren't intimidated by police. They weren't showing any red flags, et cetera, et cetera. And anyways, they were out of town on two separate trips when both the abductions happen. So how are they linked? Just a reminder, on this notepad, that Shari wrote her last will and testament, had been previously written a phone number, and that phone number was the shepherd's son, and there were phone calls from the shepherd's house to the son multiple times. So how is this linked? Why is their son's number been written on a notepad that Shari wrote her last will and testament on? Following? (laughs)
0: mm-hmm.
1: So the police ask if they knew anyone fitting the profile, a white male in his 30s, slightly overweight, shaggy beard and haircut, et cetera, et cetera. The shepherds instantly say, Larry Jean Bell. Who the fuck's
0: that? Their son? No. no.
1: He was a 36-year-old, 5 ten, overweight. He was working with Ellis as an electrician's assistant, and he house-sat for the shepherds when they traveled. Like on their last trips, which saw them being out of town at the time of the two abductions. The legal pad that Shari's will and testament came from, came from their house. It was the pad they kept by the phone. And she had written Joey's number, their son's number, on it in case Larry needed it while he was house sitting. When they came back, Larry mentioned the Shari case, which isn't a surprise because obviously it's a local case in the area. It must have been the talk of the town. But apparently he kept talking about it for hours. The shepherds started getting suspicious, especially when they saw a composite drawing of the suspect. And Ellis remembered reading that Shari was likely abducted by gunpoint. Remember, there were no other footprints, so it was thought that the abductor didn't get out of his car. He just had a gun and threatened her, and that's why she entered his car. So he went to go check to see whether his gun was still where it was, and it was not. So he calls Larry Jean Bell and asks him, mate, where's my gun? And Larry says it's under his bed. When Ellis checks under the mattress that Larry was staying in when he was at their house in the guest room, I presume, he found the gun. He could see that it had been fired, but that it was not cleaned and that it had been jammed. There was also a copy of Hustler. I mean, that's not really a red flag, I suppose, but it was one that featured a bondage picture on the cover and the woman was blonde. So this isn't building the best profile of Larry Jean, is it? That he likes S&M, he's got a type, he likes blondes. The police played a recording of Larry. It was the phone call, the fir- um, one of the first ones, where he actually didn't disguise his voice. And they identified it as Larry Jean Bell. I do wonder why they didn't go to the police with their suspicions earlier, but mm. it is what it is. Who is Larry Jean Bell? I've already told you he worked as an electrician's assistant with Ellis Shepard. i going to show you a picture of him. Surprise, surprise, it's a mugshot. Hate him. This is going to haunt your nightmares tonight. I'm sorry.
0: Oh, God. It looks like what I thought.
1: Yeah, but also, like, just your average guy as well, right? Do you know what I mean? You would pass that guy in the street and not pay any notice mm. of him at all. And just unmemorable. I'm
0: not sure about that. I With someone like Colin Pitchfork, I would. Yeah. this one looks a little bit more I suppose it's how creepy he mm. his expressions are whatever mm.
1: so he was born on 13th of october 1959 in alabama he was the fourth of five kids the family moved around a lot so that's quite unsettling for a child he graduated high school and trained as an electrician so remember the profiler said high school education no more he trained as an electrician, and then he married a tenth grader, a 16-year-old. Can you imagine being 10th in 10th grade and being a wife? It's gross. I mean, it's clearly not illegal in whatever state he was in, but it's just it's, it skeeves me out. Bell joined the Marine Corps in 1978, but that lasted less than a year. Remember again, the profiler said medically Ugh,
0: that or was spot on. Oh my God.
1: He was medically discharged or maybe. Not medically, maybe he was dishonorably discharged, but basically he had to leave because he accidentally shot himself in the knee while cleaning a gun, which means he does have some training with guns. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know how good that training sunk in there. He shot himself. Then he went on to work as a prison guard in Columbia, South Carolina in 1975. He was arrested for assault and battery when he approached a lady in a small car parking lot to go to a party with him. She said no. So he pulled a knife and tried to drag her to his car. She fought and he ran away. But police soon caught up with him. He pled guilty and got five years in prison and a fine of $1,000. This prison sentence was suspended on the condition that he paid the fine. Which seems absolutely really ridiculous to me. I know $1,000 is way more in 1985 than it is now.
0: What's crazy is that they didn't think this guy's going to reoffend. you know? And okay, this is his first offense. But it's a bad one.
1: Yeah. So a year later, he's divorced. Surprise, surprise. His wife is not sticking around for someone who's charged and found guilty, convicted of assault and battery on women. Just eight months later, eight months after the initial assault, a woman slipped near him. He went to help her up. And then he told her he was armed and started dragging her to his car. So do you see the the pattern? The minute a woman is vulnerable around him, he fucking goes into predator mode. She fought as well, like what brave women, and he fled again. But he was picked up again soon after this one. He pled guilty. The suspension of his previous sentence was revoked, and he got five extra years on top of that. But he just served two years in prison. And this one I find even more inexcusable, because like now we're seeing a pattern. And even though he had a psychiatric assessment, and the psychiatrist said, and I quote, the chance of him repeating his acts is very high.
0: So what the fuck happened to him in childhood? That's what I always want to know. There's always a story.
1: Yeah, it didn't have very much. I mean, you could tell that he had a slightly unsettled childhood at best. Five children is a lot.
0: I'm going to bet that his mother was blonde. Oh, I actually don't know.
1: So October 1979, he was convicted of making obscene phone calls to a 10-year-old girl between February to July over a prolonged period.
0: I'm also going to bet that he was abused as a child. Well, Those seem, that seems to be a...
1: More, I will get to it, okay? Oh, God. Oh we God. already heard from the profilers that very early on they suspected that he had some past records of assault, arson. They also mentioned at one point, I don't know if I did, but potentially phone calls, obscene phone calls, like he was doing to the Smith family after he abducted Shari. He didn't get jail time for this. So he was tormenting a 10-year-old girl making obscene phone calls between February and July. And didn't get jail time, even though he has his past record as well.
0: This guy is luckier than fucking Robert Durst.
1: He's basically an all-round piece of shit. But also, can I point out, like, how fucking accurate that initial profile of yeah, him was. Frightening. Yeah. So, and they even said that he was married with problems or divorced. He did get divorced during this time. Yeah. So the police pick him up. And meanwhile, the police get permission to search the Shepherd's house. They're fully on board with helping with the investigation. Sharon Shepherd gives them the notepad that, you know, that she had written her son's number on and that they suspected was used for the Will and Testament letter that Shari was forced to write. Larry Jean's room had been cleaned, the one that he was staying in, but the mattress topper hadn't been. And it was covered in blood, urine and semen, as well as different unidentified fibers. They learned that Bell's sister owned a soil and gravel company directly opposite the Shiloh Mobile Home Park where Deborah May was snatched. So Bell used to work there sometimes, used to visit his sister there. So it's possible that he was there visiting or working and he saw Deborah May and just like the profile said, took the opportunity and snatched her. They also found hairs in the room that were not the Shepherd's or Larry Jean Bell's. So ideally, the police want a confession from Bell. So much easier that way. The profiler, John Douglas, suggests something he has done before and it worked. Again, this is like super impressive. And he decides that they need to set the scene for the interview. It's not enough just to bring him into an interview room. They've got to make a a bit of theater around it. First, they used a trailer in a car park that the police had obtained on a previous case. And they made out like this was the task force office specifically for this case. They put around like stacks of files, which in reality were just piles of blank paper. They put loads of police officers at desks on computers in there. Don't know if they were on computers, it's 1985, but they had loads of police officers and desks in there to make it look like everyone was focused on this one specific case. Because it's really unlikely that they would get a confession because South Carolina is a death penalty state. So you're going to be reluctant, you know, and also child killers are notoriously not treated well in jail. So Bell is brought into this task force trailer and his face falls because he realizes, like, this is some serious shit here, right? In the interview, Bell claimed he was taking his mom to the doctor for an appointment during Shari's abduction, which seems like a weird one. They didn't mention it anymore in the in the ca- in the book, but feels like something easy to prove or disprove. Anyway, he kept talking in the third person. Larry Jean Bell did not do this, Larry Jean Bell this that and the other. Meanwhile, police have search warrants for his parents' house where he was staying when he was not house sitting for the shepherds. They found sadomasochistic porn, directions that had been given to the Smith family, to the body sites, blonde hairs in the bed that were Shari's, and finally, after a day of interrogations, they got a confession. The profiler asked him, that's John Douglas, asked him when he started feeling guilty for the crimes, and he said, I quote, When I saw a photograph and I read a newspaper article about the family praying in the cemetery on Shari's birthday. So basically their media plan worked and that it it inspired a bit of guilt in him. Because remember, they right from the start involved the media in their plans to get him to perform behaviors that they wanted. He started talking about the bad Larry Jean Bell as opposed to the good Larry Jean Bell. Is this some kind of like disassociation split personality thing? Well, that's what they thought. That is he trying? Is he seriously, uh, genuinely, mentally incapacitated, or is he trying to line up an insanity plea? Because I think in in the death penalty states, if you are found guilty but you have uh, mental health issues, that you are less likely to have the death penalty. So the prof- profiler John Douglas gets Shari's mom and daughter, uh, mom and sister, so Hilda and Dawn, to come in when they couldn't get anything more from Larry Jean Bell. So these people have lost their loved one at a very young age. They've had phone calls from the murderer. And now they're having to come in and speak to them. Like, obviously, it was with their consent that they came in. And I'm sure they wanted to do anything they could for this guy to be caught and punished and justice to be served. But can you imagine having to go in the same room as this person?
0: I hate the whole story.
1: Right. So Dara's mom and sister, Hilda and Dawn, come into the room. Bell was brought in and asked to speak so they could identify his voice, because you remember there was at least one phone call where he didn't disguise his voice? Mm -hmm. He starts talking like he's holding court and I quote, thank you all for coming. And he goes on to tell the family, and I quote, it's just the bad side of me. hate this guy. Fucking hate this guy. So at this point, it's 28 days since Shari's abduction and 14 days since Deborah May's abduction. So You know, this actually happened fairly quickly, the fact that they managed to find him and and bring him in for questioning. So, of course, Larry Jean Bell tries to claim multiple personality disorder, but he has a whole bunch of assessments and he's deemed fit to stand trial. There's some delays to the trial. I think this happens quite often because the case was so notorious in the area that it's really difficult to select a jury because the jury are meant to be I don't know if they're meant to not have heard of the case at all, but they're meant to be impartial to it or something. They definitely can't know the ins and outs of it. And in a small community, that's probably very difficult. So they end up moving it to a different county. The trial lasted 11 days. The jury deliberated for 55 minutes.
0: I'm surprised even that long.
1: I know. I think that most of that was just probably fucking admin. They have to fill in Mm -hmm. a form or something. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? But that is incredibly short amount of time, isn't it? They found him guilty of kidnapping and guilty of murder in the first degree of Shari Smith. I should say that this trial was specifically for Shari Smith, not Deborah May. He was sentenced to death. And this was in February 1986. A year later, in February 1987, they held his trial for the Deborah May Helmick murder. He was also found guilty of kidnapping and first degree murder and sentenced to death again. Which I found interesting to have two separate trials and to be sentenced to death in both of them. Because I guess he now has two different sets of death penalty sentences, which he can appeal. And maybe this is done. So in case he gets off one, the other one still holds. But also the problem is that appeals for one hold up the other one. You know, if he's appealing one, he can't be killed and, you know, serve his punishment and and be put to the electric chair while they still have appeals going on for another one. So I'm sure he manipulated this to his advantage. But at this point, post-trials, we know more about Larry Jean Bell. Surprise, surprise, he had sexually assaulted several female family members and his family covered it up. I didn't find out any abuse that he suffered. I, I don't want to say it probably happened because I didn't find anything about it, but there is a high correlation.
0: Yeah. Based on research. Yeah. Pretty much every time you read about profiles of serial killers, repeat offenders, that sort of thing. They have suffered abuse themselves. Exactly. The family covered it up.
1: One person reported that he raped her when she was 13 after stalking and abusing her for nearly 10 years. That means since she was three. And I just want to say this is an appeal out there. I know it's upsetting. I know it's not as simple as this. And it's not always black and white, and it's easier said than done. But please, please try to get the support to come forward if you have anything like this happen to you, because you can see how these behaviours fucking escalate. Mm -hmm. They almost always do if they're not addressed as early as possible. So now, this little piece of shit, Larry Jean Bell, even wrote to Don, Shari's sister, from prison, quoting Bible passages about forgiveness. Like, his fucking, I don't know if it's arrogant, but... What a dick. He actually spent longer on death row than Deborah May spent on this earth. Finally, when all his bullshit appeals were exhausted, on Friday, 4th of October, 1996, he was sent to the electric chair.
0: 96.
1: 96. And he was convicted of his second murder and awarded, that's the wrong word, the death penalty in 1987. There are still three missing person cases out there which may or may not be linked to Larry Jean Bell. There's no evidence, but they are similar enough that they suspect that he might have had something to do with them. So Denise Newsom Porch in 1975, Beth Marie Hagen in 1980, and Sandy Elaine Cornette in 1984. They're still unsolved, and it's suspected that Larry Jean Bell may have been involved in some way. <sighs> So, yeah, story of Shari Smith, Deborah May Helmick, and the absolute fucking piece of shit, Larry Jean Bell, who was responsible for their death.
0: This is my least favorite. It was awful. You present it perfectly and you really deserve a PhD in criminology. But this was like the most unsettling because of not just the murder of two kids, but the enjoyment of the torture of the families.
1: Yeah, the further torture.
0: Mm, like literally the whole way through, I'm thinking I can never let the kids out of my sight, ever. Yeah. That's why I, why I fucking hate these stories.
1: So, I'm really sorry about that. That one I told you was fucking dark. I think that's going to be my darkest. Okay. For a while, because I can't cope with anything no. else.
0: Um, hate to end on this. This is the kind of episode that needs to end with a fairy tale. <laughs> like our Like the poll we did on social media where 100% of people said they wanted us to end with a fairy tale. Do you want me to
1: end with a joke? Yes, please. Two peanuts walking down a road. One was assaulted.
0: (laughs) That's always a good one. (laughs) Okay, good. That lightened the mood a little bit because that's fucking dark. I tried. Oh, my God right
1: see you next time if you promise it'll be a little bit lighter still fascinating but a little bit lighter <laughs> well
0: mine mine won't involve kids so that that means that's it's a little it worse. it is infinitely yeah. worse I do try to stay away from the kid
1: ones because they're they take a toll on us researching these but that one I just I
0: don't know I just had to cover should I give you a clue what mine's about no because okay. I'll
1: guess it and I, I love the surprise moment okay you probably will guess it <laughs> You you're, not, you're not great at clues <laughs>
0: no. okay well it doesn't involve kids it doesn't involve okay, kids that's good all right well we
1: will see you all next week thanks so much for listening I'm sorry I'll probably see you in your nightmares after
0: that yeah stay safe thank you so much for listening bye, bye. hey there thanks for being a loyal listener
1: do you need a new website or want to boost your social media performance or do you hate podcast editing You've tried optimizing your website and social media channels, but you're still
0: not getting the listeners, downloads, and engagement you want? We, the Safi Sisters, love helping people with tasks that they hate. We know a thing or two about podcasts, websites, and social media, and we love working with other podcasters and business owners. So why not head over to switchblade sisters socialclub.com
1: and go to our work with us section. We believe in collaboration over competition. A rising tide raises all ships. Bye.